This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Masks. Will they ever go away? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm Anne-Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. You know, there are a number of places now reinstating mask mandates. It has not been more than three months when many places were backing off from masks. And, And cynically, there was a lot of belief that it had much to do with the public's impatience with masks and the upcoming midterm elections. Well, We now know that the first target of mask mandates, when they do come back, are usually the kids. And now we have new evidence that masks in schools did nothing to protect children or families. And in fact, they may have caused more harm than good. With us now to talk about the latest analysis is Phil Kirpin of the American Commitment. Good to have you back, Phil. My pleasure. I'm really great to be with you. Uh, Your analysis was part of a larger study looking at the impact that lockdowns and mandates have had on health, education, and economy of individual states. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but let's first talk about what you did, what you specifically looked at regarding the mask mandates in schools. What did you find? And, And did masks keep kids from getting sick? Well, these these are actually two different studies, and I have different collaborators on them. Oh, okay. So, uh, we can get to the we can get to the state study in in a bit. Um, but what we did with this mask study is we wanted to answer the question that the government didn't seem to bother to ever answer. And what I mean by that is, they never went back to check their work to see what actually happened uh, in this past winter. And we heard from the Federal Department of Education and the CDC over and over and over again: If you want schools open, you better mask the kids. Mask. We'll keep schools open. Masks will prevent closures. You probably saw it in the story every other day all through the winter. And then they never bothered to go check and say, hey, did the mask schools actually close less than the unmasked schools? And so we said, you know what? We're going to check because no one else has. And so what we did, uh, and I had two collaborators on this project, Josh Stevenson and Emily Burns. And uh, Emily actually acquired all of the data. She bought it from a company called Burbio that tracks this very, very closely, mm. which is why the studies posted on her site because she has the actual licensing to post uh, a study based on their data, uh, which, which I did not. because She was the one who acquired it. And basically, we uh, acquired the data for the 500 largest school districts in the country uh, by enrollment. So it, it covers you know, it covers not quite half of the in, of the student population in the country, a little less than half, uh, but essentially all of the large urban and suburban school districts across the country, the 500 largest. And what we did is we checked. We, we checked, you know, were the masked districts more likely or less likely to close than the unmasked? And we found literally the exact opposite of what <laughs> the CDC and the Department of Education had told us would happen. In fact, uh, it was the mask-mandated school districts that were much more likely to close uh, than the mask-optional districts. 35%, 35% of mask-mandated school districts had a closure uh, in January or February versus 11% of mask-optional. And the total number of student days lost as a percentage of all student days uh, was over 3% in the mask-mandated districts, and it was 0.75 or one quarter of that. Uh, in the mask optional. And so there was much, much more disruption in the mask mandated districts uh, than the mask optional. 
That is shocking because that was the explanation of why kids had to mask up to keep the school doors open and they actually had the opposite effect. What do you suppose this suggests? Why were the schools that required masks closed more often than those that did not? Did the mask make the kids well, sicker? Probably not. Probably not. I think that it was, I think it's that the mask create sort of panic they create kind of edge and you know when you get people already on edge already panicked uh and then you get into the winter and you have a seasonal increase in cases well what's the next step closure Mm, and i think mm -hmm. in the places where things were more normal and they were less panicked you get into a seasonal increase and it's okay yeah we sort of expect that we're not going to freak out we're not going to panic and so you didn't get zero closures in the mask optional places but i think you got a lot fewer closures because they were driven by you know, real absenteeism and staff shortages and stuff like that, as opposed to, you know, perception and fear and panic. Yeah, well, that's that's real interesting that you create now this perception of fear and higher expectation. And, you know, I look around even today, a lot of the mask mandates supposedly are done. And well, I don't know in schools, but you see many, many children masked up just in general public, in the general public. And so I think it really has had a lasting impact on the psychology of children. Um, how, how do school closures harm children? I mean, can't technology make up for the lost face to face time? Well, for the, for the vast majority of children, uh, the answer is no. It, it, in fact, we're looking at deficits um, in terms of you know academic levels that are approximately equal to the amount of time that we had disruption, which is to say that if, if somebody was remote or virtual learning for six months, they're probably six months behind in school, which is to say they got about nothing out mm-hmm. of that virtual uh, learning experience on average. Now, you know, some kids did reasonably well, especially where they had parents who were heavily involved and essentially became the teachers. Um, but by and large, on a statistical basis, uh, remote schooling has been a failure. And yeah. uh, it's not just the educational losses, of course, but there are, are major social-emotional deficits as well, and we've seen significant mental health harms. And so uh, a lot of the things we thought would happen with school disruptions have happened. I should say, though, and I think this is important, Emory, uh, you know, when I say 3% of total student learning days were lost in January and February in the mask mandate districts and less than a quarter of that uh, in the unmasked, you know, even the mask mandate at 3% compared to where we were the previous year, where it was probably, you know, 50%, uh, we actually have made a pretty significant, we made very significant progress, even in the worst places in terms of school closures this winter uh, compared to the previous winter. And I'm hoping that as the panic recedes and people understand that, you know, respiratory viruses are part of life, we can get back to being pretty much, you know, zero disruption. But we have made significant progress. The challenge is, uh, you know, how do we dig out of the hole that so mm-hmm. many kids are in? And uh, that's, you know, a very difficult question. And I will say this. The one thing we should not do is throw more money at the same people who did this. <laughs> that would be the CDC. <laughs> so, CDC, Department of yeah. Education, these major urban school districts, and you know, I think we yeah. need to. Uh, I think we need to focus on on you know how do you empower parents to have more options to get their kids out of that hole to be able to choose, you know, the programs that can help for them, the uh, the summer programs in particular, the enrichment, whatever it might be. I, I really think we need to focus on. Uh, you know, targeting the resources to giving parents maximum choice as opposed to just pouring them into the same, you know, school district because it's such a bad job with that. 
Yeah. You know, I, there's a citizen, I live in the state of Michigan, and there's a citizen petition going around to create a school authority that will allow people to make um, tax, well, credited tax advantage contributions to this authority so that working class and, you know, lower income students could get scholarships for yeah. education alternatives. They're, they do it in a number of states. And I think this has probably motivated that effort a little bit more, the closures and the mask. You know, speaking of the CDC, it was about this time last year that we learned that the teachers unions heavily lobbied these schools, uh, or actually the CDC, to close the schools, or at least uh, say in their guidance, be more restrictive about when they should reopen. Do we have any information? Do you know that they had any um, influence regarding the mask policies, or was it strictly on the school closures? Do you know anything about that? Well, I definitely think it's both. I mean, I think the uh, the the teachers union leadership dictated a lot of the. Uh, guidance that we've seen out of the CDC and of course from the AAP as well, the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think it's really important for people to, re to remember uh, that in summer 2020, we were on track for a pretty normal 2020-2021 school year. In fact, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics that summer recommended full normal school. Uh, they did not recommend masks in elementary school. Uh, they had pretty sensible guidelines and they actually did a big event at the Trump White House, and I, I was there, and I, I remember how things seemed so on track uh, for this school disruption to be pretty short-lived, really, just to be hmm. kind of uh, ending the end of the 2020 school year, and it looked like things were really cracked. And it was only 10 days after that where the American Academy of Pediatrics completely reversed their position, literally in a joint statement with the teachers' union. They started calling for school closures and uh, you know, forced masking and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I really think that the profession of pediatrics has uh, kind of disgraced itself throughout mm. the, the COVID era because uh, they knew what was right. And the evidence, even by summer 2020, was really clear from Europe and elsewhere that uh, schools were not a high-risk environment and they should be operating essentially normally. And they, they disregarded the evidence and they disregarded what was best for children, uh, even though they, they had already stated it publicly, but they, they said – Essentially, you know, we're going to go with our political allies. We're going to go with the teachers union and sort of the, this left wing coalition to discredit uh, then President Trump. And then to your point, uh, we saw sort of a continuation of this, uh, really, I think, an outrageous continuation of this, you know, well into last year's school year. Uh, we got into the winter of 2020, 2021, and they had their Democrat president. They disrupted and defeated uh, President Trump and Biden got in. And the assumption, I think, among a lot of people was, OK, Biden's in, school's going to be back to normal finally, <laughs> yeah. all the schools in these liberal places will open. And instead, they said, no, no, wait a second, we're going to keep them closed until we can shake down taxpayers for 150 or $200 oh, billion yeah. dollars in this massive COVID spending bill. And in fact, they dictated all of those changes to the CDC uh, guidance that changed a document which everyone assumed was going to be a school opening document. They changed it into a school closure document, essentially, and they called for almost all the schools in the country to close. Uh, in winter 2021 and they of course got that massive spending bill through and uh you know after they finally got it through they eased up somewhat but you know i think that it's been essentially politics all the way down and the people who are supposed to care about children uh essentially sacrifice them threw them over the side for their political objectives
Yeah, and I think that's why there was so much doubt when these states started lifting mask mandates a couple of months ago. No one believed it. No one believed that they were really serious because it was only a matter of time. And sure enough, you know, we're starting to see some states uh, reinstating these mask mandates and we're not getting them on. We're still required to wear them on planes and in airports. Um, I don't know. It just seems like there is a, a an interest in keeping fear at a certain level all the time. And like you said, they get trigger happy. Once, you know, you set that, that standard, they're more prone to close or whatever, like we saw in schools. So all um, very interesting, your research, and I'm glad that you had worked on that. You know, I want to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to ask you about this other study uh, done by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which your name was on. So that's why I um, wanted to talk to you about that. Like so many donors, you might be using a donor-advised fund for your giving because of the simplicity and the tax advantages it offers. But did you know that banks that manage charitable funds are increasingly hostile to conservatives? In fact, Fidelity Charitable and other national donor-advised fund providers have refused to make grants to several conservative organizations like National Rifle Association, Turning Point USA, state think tanks, and others. The great thing about the market, though, is that you do not have to stay with a fund that does not honor your values. Instead of leaving your charitable dollars with a commercial fund, you can move your giving to Donors Trust. Preserve your donor intent while maintaining the tax savings, the flexibility, and the privacy a charitable fund provides. Stop using a fund that creates barriers to investing in the causes and freedoms you care about. Roll over your donor-advised fund to Donors Trust, the national donor-advised fund that shares and honors your values. Donors Trust can help you roll over a pre-existing account in three simple steps. It can also help you get started with a new donor-advised account. You can see how with your free donor prospectus. Simply go to donorstrust.org heartland. That's donorstrust.org heartland to see how to get started with a charitable partner that honors your values. Donors Trust. And we'll include a link with the podcast notes. All right, we are back. Now, I feel... Um, Tell us about this research that the National Bureau of Economic Research did um, that was released early April. And they what it did was they ranked the states on outcomes from the lockdowns and the mandates. Uh, what did this analysis find on the other two areas? So we, we talked about masks and schools and um, education, and but they also looked at mortality and economic incomes. Tell us kind of what uh, the, the general outcome of this study was? Well, this is a study I did with uh, two different co-authors. This one was with uh, Stephen Moore uh, of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity and Freedom Works and uh, Casey Mulligan of the University of Chicago. And what we did with this study is we essentially, we, we rated the state, state performance, 50 state performance on three different dimensions uh, related to COVID over the last two years. One of them is education and that one uh, was pretty straightforward. It was the percentage of instruction that was in person uh, over the 2020-2021 uh, school year. And uh, we used that because we had complete data set. And that was, I think, the best indicator of you know the extent to which states prioritized education. 
We did uh, one measure of mortality, and it has two subcomponents. One is the age-adjusted, health status-adjusted COVID deaths uh, per 100,000 in each state, and the other is just the percentage of excess deaths, so the percentage of deaths were higher than the normal ex expected deaths, and that's kind of a broader measure because it takes into account if lockdowns cause more drug overdoses or other types of deaths, things like that, that we don't even necessarily have the details on yet, but we know the overall number of deaths, so we wanted to use kind of a blend of the all-cause mortality and uh, the known COVID mortality, and so that's kind of the health metric that we used. And then for the economy, we used uh, two measures. We used employment and we used GDP by state, and for both of them, we put uh, some adjustment factors on based on industry composition so that the states that were heavily dependent on tourism or on oil and gas would not be penalized for that. And so we essentially looked at state economic performance if all of the states had kind of the same industry concentration. So we corrected for the states that were more vulnerable to the things that you know, there was nothing they could do about. They were going to be disrupted just because of the nature of the pandemic. And then we kind of uh, did a combined score. We just equally weighted those three different factors, and we did a combined score to kind of answer the question of which states overall had the best performance in the pandemic period. And uh, the patterns w were pretty clear. The most liberal states that were the most interventionist in terms of lockdowns and mandates and so forth, they had the worst overall performance. And uh, the states that were at the top were states like Utah and Nebraska that had a relatively light-touch approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, really the, the only state where it, it appears to be the case that substantially harming an economy through lockdowns actually had benefits in terms of preventing COVID deaths, the only state where that seemed to work was Hawaii, which is obviously such a unique state because right. they can they're on an island and they can have they can really control the population coming in and that kind of thing. So Hawaii, there did seem to be benefit, although the economic price was really, really high. Uh, they still haven't recovered. Um, but pretty much everywhere else, uh, there was no relationship between how much a state hurt itself economically and uh, what its COVID outcomes were. Well, that, that is fascinating. And, you know, I would see bits and pieces of this. We'd look at the unemployment numbers and kind of make a guess of how the lockdowns were working. I think WalletHub had ranked the states based on their uh, lockdowns, the level of them. And so we, we were always guessing. You know, we there was a presumption that the lockdowns had a very heavy price, but um, this was really something that took a look at these three very critical areas uh, do you think we've learned any lessons from this? Do you think someone in our government will say, wow, you know, now we have this evidence that this stuff doesn't really work? Or do you, are you fearful that, you know, they, these have become kind of the standing operating procedure? Well, you know, I, I fear that uh, a lot of the liberal politicians and the so-called public health experts uh, would rather make the same, would rather make the same mistakes all over again than admit, that, than admit they were wrong. And for that reason, I do fear that when we get back into the winter again and the numbers are up, you're going to start to see some places repeat some of these mistakes yet again. That said, um, I think enough people understand this and enough people have had enough of the restrictions uh, that I just don't think the politics of that are going to be favorable. So I don't think you're going to hear any mention of that before the election, really. Uh, I think Democrats are desperately trying to sort of minimize their losses this year. I do fear that when we get back into December, January, February again, in the places where there's uncontested democratic control, 
you're going to see these things creep back in because the their political calculation is going to be a little bit different in those areas. It's going to be, you know, I don't want my base people here who believe in all this stuff to have any reason to question it. And as long as we do it every year, they're never going to have an, you know, an they're never going to have a different experience to compare it to. <laughs> yeah. Able to say, wait a second, we didn't do it and everything was fine. So I, I think, uh, unfortunately, we're still going to see these things uh, recur, but I think it's only going to be in the most liberal places. Well, I guess three cheers for our federal federalist system, because if you don't like what's going on in your state, you now have this report and you can pick and choose a state that really suffered the least and, and you kind of know where they stand. So that's wonderful. We have 50 choices in this country of where to live. And who knows, you know, the federal government does have a very heavy arm, but um, at least you may have uh, some freedoms in these individual states. Well, great work. This is fascinating. Um, thank you so much, Phil Kirpin. Uh, you'll have to come back. All right. Happy to do it anytime. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was Phil Kirpin from the American Commitment uh, coming on today to share his work on masks in schools and how the mandates and lockdowns impacted the health, economy, and education in individual states. And as always, I'll have those links to, to those reports in the podcast notes. And as always, if you enjoyed this free market discussion, please share the link to the Heartland Daily Podcast, become a regular subscriber, and we thank you for joining us. This is Anne-Marie Schieber. <music> <laughs>